You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between, if you have a piece of hunting gear or a piece of hunting equipment that needs a battery, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. You can go to a local retail store. Or you can go visit online at interstatebatteries.com. They have thousands of local retail shops all over the U.S., so you can go there as well. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Coffee and Deer Show, Coffee and Deer Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pinizzato, the president and CEO of the National Deer Alliance, and I'm glad you joined us. Uh, it's hard to do too many of these shows without uh, talking about chronic wasting disease, and we're going to definitely jump into that topic today. And I'm excited about the guest that we have on today is Brian Richards. He's the Emerging Disease Coordinator with the USGS National Wildlife Health Center, and we're going to have him tell us a little bit about what that center does. Believe it or not, it's just not chronic wasting disease. So, uh, And uh, we'll get into some other things as well. Brian is someone I've gotten to know pretty well here over the last year or so after we did an event together up in Wisconsin and we uh, have a lot of conversations and a lot of fun and uh, and we're not always serious all the time and hopefully some of that will reflect here in today's show. So Brian, thank you for jumping on with us today and uh, how's the weather in Wisconsin right now? It's not snowing there yet, is it? No, it's been gorgeous and, and, and thanks Nick for having me. Uh, yesterday was a little bit on the rainy side, but uh, right now it looks like it's about 70 degrees outside and not a cloud in the sky. So we'll take it, right? Absolutely. It's starting starting to feel a lot more like uh, fall is coming and hunting season and we've got velvet coming off here in some areas already. So yeah, it's it's starting to feel like that time of year. Yeah, the vegetation's really starting to change. You know, I, I look out at some some prairie remnants and things like that, and the you know the colors are really starting to look a little bit like fall. Yes, it's a it's a time. I think most of the listeners now are, are uh, that's the type of weather they want. We if we could have fall of uh, excuse me have fall all year long. I think we'd have it, and uh, we're getting close. So with that, let's. Uh, Let's talk a bit about you, Brian. Um, you're not just the, the CWD guru, so I want you to tell us just a little bit about yourself, some of the things you're into, and then we'll, we'll jump into the topic of the day. Sounds good. Well, I don't know. There's not that much to tell. I'm a, I'm a wildlife biologist, and uh, I, I guess you'd have to call me a deer biologist, uh, although I've heard that pretty much everybody east of the Mississippi River is does qualify as a as a white-tailed deer biologist, so I'm not alone out there. Um, I went to uh, school at UW Madison uh, a long, long time ago, 
And uh, in, a, in a prior stint, I worked for this little outfit called Texas Parks and Wildlife Department for 11 years, um, doing stuff with deer, working out of their headquarters. For the past oh, a little over 15 years, I've been back here in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, at the National Wildlife Health Center. Um, not too far from where I grew up. Grew up on a dairy farm, just a couple miles or a couple hours northwest of here. So, uh, I, I, as we t talked about the fall weather, yep, I absolutely enjoy it in this part of the world. You know, it's interesting. You and I were just at a meeting together in Madison. That's probably not even been a month ago now. And I'd never been, to, never had been to Madison before. What a great town! I mean, it's a college town, obviously, but it was uh, full of energy, and there was a big uh, concert in the middle of town that night. So um, I have to say, I walked away really impressed, and I want to come back. It's a pretty neat town, absolutely. So you have, you know, it's the state capital, so you've got all that going on downtown. Then it's a land grant university at UW Madison with, you know, forty thousand plus students. Uh, of course, on Saturday afternoons or some Saturday afternoons at Camp Randall for Badger Games, there will be, you know, close to 90,000 folks in that stadium watching Badger football. So it's a uh, it's a it's a great town. There's if you're into live music, there's there's lots of things here. Uh, I, I understand there's some pretty good microbreweries around the around the area, so I've been told anyway. But a, a lot of fun stuff to do around this area. If you're into trout fishing, uh, you don't have to go far to find uh, you know, native brook trout uh, streams uh, in the southwestern part of the state. So, and yeah, we're not all that far from northern Wisconsin, which has some you know just a fantastic things to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a, it's a really cool state in a lot of ways, a lot of diverse habitats and opportunities to do things there. And I really enjoyed Madison. And, and I, I had to bring this up. Um, so while we were talking, you had mentioned that you were about to go see some minor league baseball and it was take your pup to the game night. And I know you love your pup. So I want to give you a chance to, to talk about your your best friend there and, and some of the cool things you guys do together. So we got two dogs at home. One's a, uh, you know, purebred golden. And so he loves life and everyone loves him, which is exactly, I think that's what golden retrievers, their role in the world is, is to bring joy and happiness to everyone around them, no matter what. And the other dog, his name's Porter. And the, the golden is named Finch. The, the other one's Porter. He is, he came from a rescue. He's half lab and we believe half Rottweiler. So he's an interesting guy. Um, I like to think of him. If you ever read Hank the Cow Dog, a uh, series of, of books, um, <laughs> Hank was the head of ranch security. And my dog is definitely, he's the head of ranch security. He's on duty and, and looking out for us at all times. Gotcha. So yeah, they're fun guys. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And we have a blue healer mix here and she's, she's in charge of everything as well. And our vet likes to make a joke about how tough it is to be in charge of everything. And uh, they're sort of very high stress, uh, anxiety dogs, but, um, but great pets as well. Yeah, that's so the two I have, the golden is the most laid back thing in the, in, on the planet. And, and the lab mix is, is exactly what you described with your blue healer, just, you know, wound tight. And so the two of them make an interesting pair. They're best buddies. Yeah, you know, they do everything <laughs> together. 
including getting into things like skunks and, you know, things like that. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so tell us about the National Wildlife Health Center. It's not just a, a center for chronic wasting disease. I think people would appreciate knowing a little bit more broadly about, about what you do there. All right. So NWHC, National Wildlife Health Center, we're on the southwest side of Madison. We also have a field station in Honolulu. I have been trying for 15 years to get, you know, stationed out there and it just hasn't happened. So yeah, here I am. Here I am in Madison. So we've been here since 1975 and we conduct diagnostics and wildlife disease research. So we work with partners, state, federal, tribal partners primarily. And so when, a, when there's a mortality event in wildlife, lots of things dying or lots of things sick on the landscape, you know, we've worked with those partner entities to help them determine the cause of death in those animals that are dying and to help better understand the ecological conditions that may have led to that mortality event and ultimately to try and develop tools that might help mitigate or prevent those things from happening in, in the future. So, so that's a big thrust is that diagnostic and disease research. Then another, another key thing we do is we provide epidemiological and technical assistance out to those partners as well. So we, we try and share the wealth of knowledge that we have accumulated over you know, greater than 40 years here. Uh, another interesting little factoid is we are the only federal facility that has a focus on wildlife health, and we do that for the benefits of wildlife. And that's a little bit of contrast with some other entities out there that look at wildlife health issues, but primarily from the perspective of the impacts of wildlife on either humans or domestic livestock. So when it comes to you know, wildlife health for wildlife, we're doing it. We've been doing it for, like I said, over 45 years, and we partner with virtually all of the state natural resource agencies, USDA, Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, in addition, we are, are recognized by OIE, the World Organization for Animal Health, and, and we partner with the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative in providing that international posture on wildlife health. So just a, a smattering of background there. Yeah, it's a ton of things. And I, like I said, I, I believe that most people have no idea about all the different things that you do there and, and highly respected, not just here in the United States, but globally. And uh, it's uh, so, you know, talking about that then and then talking about CWD. So I'm curious with all of the things that you're busy doing there. Do you remember, uh, I guess, two things, maybe the first time someone uh, came to you and, and, and said, hey, we got we to gotta work more on chronic wasting disease. So there's that one. And then when it hits you that like, this is a really big deal and I'm going to probably be really busy with this for a long time. Or maybe that was all the same day. I don't know. So the, the kind of the hallmark day that I, I think if you asked a lot of folks out there who have been involved with CWD, Kind of the you know the, the the day on the calendar with the big red circle on it was in in 2002, 
And it was the day that Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources announced publicly that they had detected CWD in three hunter-killed wild deer. And so this was, you know, we're on the east side of the Mississippi. We're some 900 miles away from, you know, the endemic zone in Colorado. And so it was a very important day uh, in that it's all these big questions. How did CWD make it that far? Pretty clear that, you know, deer and elk didn't walk all the way from Colorado to the state of Wisconsin. So almost certainly we were looking at, you know, some kind of anthropogenic, you know, human-assisted movement. We'll never know exactly how CWD got here. And I would argue at this point in time, it likely doesn't matter. But that was the banner day. Yeah, and I, it's, uh, <laughs> I have heard other people say that as well. And, you know, it's interesting. One thing I want to follow up on here that you said was that, you know, we don't, we don't know exactly how it got here and we may not ever know. Um, so then what I see is a lot of people will take that a statement like that and say, well, it's always been here. And so what's, what's your favorite response whenever you hear that? Well, if folks argue it's always been here, I invite them to take a, a close look at the data and the trends that we see. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I've been able to do, you know, since I, I've, I've been with USGS is to kind of track the progression of CWD and working very closely, you know, with state agencies, including Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. So Wisconsin DNR, since the early years, 2002 or just prior to that, has collected over 230,000 CWD samples, primarily from hunter-killed deer. And so what we can do is we can plot them out and we can look at how the distribution of CWD has changed over time in the state of Wisconsin. And it's very clear, it's, it's spreading geographically and it looks like a slow diffusive movement out from a central foci. So that's every bit, I guess the way you could imagine it is kind of like you know, a, a volcano. So you're going to have magma flowing up to the surface and then flowing out in all directions, you know, uh, you know, from that, from that initial focus. That's exactly what we see with the distribution of CWD in the state of Wisconsin. So that is not at all consistent with the disease has always been here. It's consistent with the disease, infectious material, somehow made it to a single location in the state of Wisconsin disease took hold in the deer, in the free-ranging white-tailed deer in that area of Wisconsin, you know, 30 whatever miles west of where I'm sitting today. And disease has done two things in, since that point in time. Number one, it spread geographically out in that diffusive deer-to-deer-to-deer -deer -deer method. And the other is that we've seen prevalence or the proportion of animals affected with disease rise and it's higher in that core area. So, so it's completely inconsistent with it's always been here, completely consistent with it was dropped on the landscape and it's progressed over time and space since it, since it arrived. Yeah, and I, I just I always look at it as really lazy thinking when people just subscribe to that and it's because 
that's easier than having to think through everything that you just said and to look at the data. It's just easier to say, well, it's always been here. I, but it's a really uneducated statement and unfortunate. It's, it's one that we have to continue, continue to dispute out there. So um, it, it is really telling, Nick. Um, you know, what's kind of interesting is even when, you know, if we, if, let's reset the clock, maybe 10 years or 12 years and go back to 2007. And the state of Wisconsin collecting all this data. And at that point in time, it was challenging just looking at that raw data to really conclude there was something going on. But interestingly enough, one of the one of the folks here at National Wildlife Health Center's name is Dennis Heisey. He's retired now. Real powerful biostatistician. And uh, and he took a very you know hardcore statistical look at the data Wisconsin had collected, and he published it you know in 2009 in an ecological in a in a journal called Ecological Monographs. Uh, this is hardcore science. I don't I don't understand much of it because it's you know the the manuscript is filled with formulae. Um, but anyway, Dennis's work, even with the first, you know, five or six years of data collected by the state of Wisconsin, he was convinced from a from a, a statistical point of view that this disease was increasing, you know, exponentially at that point in time. I said when you looked at the raw data, it was hard to see, but the trend was there. He just needed more powerful tools. Now we move that clock forward. And we can see how prevalence has risen in the area, you know, west of Madison here. Now the DNR has done a, a really good job of making these data available out there on their website. And so we can see these zones where CWD has gotten hold and it's and it's built over time. And now we've got this, you know, almost a 20 year time frame. And we can very clearly see, you know, you can look at the chart and go, yep, it's growing and it's growing at an exponential rate. Early on, it was very challenging to see. We needed tremendously powerful tools to be able to you know, tell people what was going on and they still didn't honestly believe it sometimes. But now the data has become so strong that it's undeniable what CWD is doing out there. Yeah, it really is undeniable. And I guess we're talking about things that I guess we wish hunters, outdoors people would know about this disease. I mean, if you could, uh, if you could pick just a couple of things like, okay, these are, if you don't know anything else about CWD, please at least know these couple of things. What would they be? All right. Well, I think it's, it's things that, so it's really a subjective determination, right? If whether something's important or not, but we can look to objective data and science to help inform our decision of whether, whether we think CWD is important. So we went through a couple of, number one, it's spreading geographically, no question. Number two, in areas where CWD has been the longest, we see these prevalence or the proportion of herds affected by disease increasing. Number three is when prevalence gets high enough, we start seeing you know, herd productivity being impacted. So those three characteristics of this disease would lend to an assessment of, hey, yeah, this is not nothing. It looks like this is a pretty serious disease of deer out on the landscape. So that's one of the take-home points that when I talk with hunters, um, you know, stakeholders, 
is, hey, let's look at the data. You may not be convinced, but let's look at what the data actually shows this disease is doing on the ground. Then make up your mind, right? Everybody's entitled to their own opinion of whether they think this thing is serious or not. But I think the data do a pretty compelling job of suggesting that it is. So, so that's one of the take-homes is, you know, it's not nothing. Um, I always tell people if you, if you Google the truth about CWD, you're not likely to find it. So <laughs> what, what, I'm, what I'm most interested in is folks out there, you know, deer aficionados, you know, when you go to deer camp, go armed with information, accurate, scientifically supported information, and talk about CWD. That's how we're going if to, we're, if we're going to make inroads with this disease, we need the support of hunters. We need buy-in of hunters, and that's been challenging to get. So my number one goal is having more stakeholders, more hunters sharing with each other accurate science-based information about this disease. Yeah, I think those are perfect. And I, you know, we're predisposed to not want to believe things that don't meet our desires and our needs and chronic wasting disease does not meet anybody's need or desire. It's not good for anybody. And therefore it becomes real easy to uh, consume the pieces that really fit your narrative and that work for you and not do, uh, not do the work to dig into the science and, and really understand. And I think what the key take home point you made there is that this is real. This is not uh, made up. This is not uh, one of my, uh, favorite, not favorite uh, comments I hear is it's a money-making endeavor and I just shake my head because I wonder who's making money. Um, this is a loser. It's a loser for everybody and it's very real. And I think that you, you made that point very clearly there. Yeah. And the, the long-term implications of this for, for deer, uh, for deer hunting, for natural resource management agencies, it's, going to be interesting to watch so we a number of of organizations have done what we refer to as human dimensions work and so it's surveys sending out surveys or interviewing hunters and other stakeholders and several of these groups that have done the research have found kind of the same thing that when prevalence or the proportion of a herd gets up in that 30 40 percent range so you know one out of every third deer out there in the place where your hunting has CWD, their research predicts that either you or your family, someone in your family, may alter your hunting behavior. And you're just going to go, well, you know what? We're just not going to go here anymore. We're not going to hunt there anymore. So that makes it, that's a challenge from a number of different perspectives. First, we don't want to lose hunters. Uh, yeah, we're losing enough hunters rapidly the way it is. So we don't need disease to help us lose hunters. Number two, if we lose hunters in those CWD zones, well, they're our number one tool um, for, you know, for keeping deer populations in check to start with. Uh, without hunters, how do we manage deer? And if we lose hunters, how do those state you know, provincial natural resource agencies, how do they even keep the doors open? You know, if we look at, you know, data, you know, supplied by Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, in their, in their um, hunter and angler and, and outdoor, you know, wildlife user surveys, 
hunting, big game hunting pays the bills. We've always known that, that, you know, I mean, certainly other kinds of, of hunting and non-consumptive use does bring some resources into state natural resource agencies, but big game hunting and license revenues really pays the bills for a lot of the other great work that these state-based, you know, agencies do out, out there on the landscape. So if we lose big game hunters, lose those license revenues, it leads to a, a cascade of, of, you know, really hard issues to deal with. Yeah, and I think we could easily do a whole show just on that. And um, I, that's one of the things is we're trying to ramp up our communication about CWD. I want to make sure we're on, on a parallel track that we're ramping up just really good communication and information about what rock stars deer really are for conservation and not just being an iconic animal that a lot of people like to hunt. I think it's hard to find a person that doesn't like a deer, even a, even a farmer that deals with crop damage, I think has an appreciation at least, I think at least most do. And uh, so I want to make sure we're doing that parallel to talking about the issues with this disease and uh, related to all this, uh, I'm curious, uh, you and I've talked about this in the past. I think our listeners would appreciate hearing your perspective. And that is the dangers of, sensational claims associated with the disease. And um, you don't have to address these specific ones, but I'll bring up uh, Dr. Uh, Frank Bastian's claim of uh, having uh, working with a group out of Pennsylvania claiming there'd be a cure for CWD within a year. Um, you've got uh, some people picking, choose, picking and choosing parts of the science and interpreting it certain ways, which uh, isn't, isn't helpful. Um, so those types of sensational claims, saying more than we know or stepping uh, beyond what we should know, just the danger of that. Yeah, um, I don't want to step on anybody's toes or try and, you know, throw, the, throw anybody under a bus or anything like that. I try never to do that. But I, I think you're right. We've seen some things in the media over the past couple of years. The first was, um, or one of the first, was the use of the term zombie deer disease. Clearly sensationalistic, you know, meant to draw attention, get clicks. And, and sure, I understand media, media survives on clicks these days. Uh, but that brought this just strange bit of attention and a comparison with, you know, something that CWD is not. Um, so we think about a, you know, I guess a, in theory, a zombie is something that comes back from the dead. You know, these deer, when you see a deer in the clinical phase of CWD, you can't help but feel sorry for this animal. This animal has been, you know, suffering from progressive neurological degeneration, and it's about to die. Uh, you know, the its brain has, is literally filled with microscopic holes where neurons used to be. These animals look sad, they're on deathbed. And so sensationalizing this by calling these animals zombies is just, you know, it, it really doesn't make any sense unless you're, like I said, if you're after clicks. So, so that didn't help. Um, and, and yeah, periodically, we hear um, different things uh, accentuated, like, yeah, we're, we're going to fix this quick, or, you know, if we just put a million dollars or two million dollars here, you know, we'll, we'll get it fixed um, in, in no time. 
so there's a there's a body of folks out there who have been working you know researchers hardcore researchers who have dedicated their careers to studying you know this family of diseases nick if it was easy we would have fixed it by now yeah and i think that's one of the things that is easily lost on people and it's not that um when we come out and say, hey, you know, hold, hold the horses here a second, we're, we're not necessarily behind what you're hearing, people get upset with that because they're not upset with us necessarily. It's just that they're upset because they want to hear good news. And as a, you know, as human beings, we go to doctors, we get shots, we take medications, and we treat illnesses, disorders in certain ways. And so then it becomes very confusing when we don't have those same types of tools in other areas and wildlife management being one of them. We don't, we don't always have the answers. And I think that becomes frustrating to people and they want to hear good news. And when they hear something that sounds like good news, they want to run with it. And then it seems like we're raining on the parade and then, uh, then we become the bad guys. And it's just a, it's really all in the spirit of people want to hear good news and they want to hear that there's hope and that there's possibility yeah, um, I, think, so, I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, I, I'm, boy, I'm waiting for that eureka moment um, where I see in a, in a peer-reviewed scientific publication that, hey, we figured it out. Here's how to deal with it. Um, but I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I've read hundreds to thousands of peer-reviewed papers dealing with disease wildlife disease, this family of diseases, you know, prion diseases and, and chronic wasting disease. And, and every time there's a new publication, it helps, you know, puts another like a little piece in the jigsaw puzzle. But we haven't, you know, what we have not done is found tools which are acceptable to our stakeholders. Um, we talk about tools for, for a second. I mean, you go back to you know, a guy named Aldo Leopold. I think you may have heard of him. You know, father of wildlife management. You go back to his, you know, treatise called Game Management, published, I believe, in 1932. He identified the tools that we had at that point in time to manage wildlife and habitat. So they're called the axe, the plow, the cow, and fire. Those same tools which we had heretofore used to destroy habitat could be used to build habitat and maintain habitat. We have those same tools today. And then he identified the, the tool that we have to manage populations. It's called the gun. And sure, there's all kinds of different derivations of guns, but that's how we manage populations is by lethal removal of individual animals. It's how we've always managed deer and other wildlife as far as that goes. So here we are, you know, almost a century later, and I would argue that we still utilize those same tools that Leopold identified nearly a century ago. Would it be nice to have, you know, a vaccine that we could spread easily and cheaply across, you know, better than half of North America for the next 25 years to make, you know, to vaccinate deer uh, to keep them from getting CWD? Yeah, wouldn't it be nice? But let's not hold our breath. So in the meantime, you know, we do have that tool that Leopold identified. And, and certainly the science 
suggest ways that we can use the gun in a, in a very useful manner. Likely, you know, we can't get rid of CWD where it's been established over these large geographic areas, but there's likely some things that we could do to slow it down, to potentially reverse increases in prevalence when we find what we refer to as a new spark, a brand new area outside of an endemic zone we could likely alter the outcome of disease in some of those instances, but the medicine doesn't taste good. And so that just came to mind because you talked about, you know, when we get sick, we go to the doctor, you know, they prescribe medicine and we usually take that medicine. So when we're dealing with a disease like CWD out there established in free ranging deer populations, there's medicine that can be applied, but almost universally in North America, we've said, nah, I don't like that medicine. That medicine tastes too nasty and we're just not going to take it. Yeah, and that's uh, just beautifully said there. Um, and I think uh, that's, that's something anybody listening to this is probably kind of having that aha moment. Like, eh, I, I kind of see, see what you mean there. Um, something people can relate to for sure. And so you, you kind of answered the next thing I was going to ask. Uh, and that was what, what does success look like to you? And you talked about slowing the spread. Is there anything else uh, related to that success wise that you, that you want to add? Let me think on that a minute. Um, what would success look like? Here's some components, and I don't know if this is success, but it's part of a of a program, a well you know thought out program uh, that might be useful to think about with CWD, and it would can include things like uh, a robust surveillance, right? in order to, uh, early, you know, our, our best chance to deal with disease is if we detect it early. If we don't detect disease until it's been on the ground for, you know, 10 years or so, our chances to be successful are quite diminished. Strong precautionary measures. So virtually every state or jurisdiction that has CWD, when talking with a state that doesn't have CWD, they would tell them, do everything you can to keep from getting disease. So strong precautionary measures coupled with a strong surveillance program in deer to try and identify disease, well, keep it out. And if you can't keep it out, finding it early. Then if you found disease early, you know, uh, active, aggressive intervention, you know, to try and, and, you know, hold it in check, maybe get rid of it, seems like the way to go, um, followed by intensive monitoring. Uh, I think, uh, you know, having a, an open, honest, you know, almost continuous dialogue with your stakeholders is really, really important because we need stakeholders to be supportive in order to be successful. So, is there an example of where that's been done is the next logical question. I'd say, yeah, there is. Let's, uh, let's take a look at the country of Norway real briefly. So Norway was you know, on the lookout for CWD, had, uh, had, had done surveillance. They picked up CWD, it was in 2016. 
if I recall right, yeah, 2016, they detected in reindeer in the southern part of Norway. And they did additional surveillance. And all the surveillance they did suggested that it was very early in the disease cycle. So it hadn't been there very long. So likely the amount of environmental contamination was quite low. So Norway decided to take what you know could be termed anywhere as a very draconian management response. So they deal with reindeer in herd units in in Norway, much like we do deer units, you know, across the United States. They felt that the evidence suggested that CWD was only in a single herd unit, and they decided to eliminate the herd unit. So they gave hunters the first swing at it. Hunters took a little over a thousand reindeer out of this herd unit, and then government came back in and they took the rest of them, you know, with with sharpshooters. And so someplace in the neighborhood, of, I think 2,200 reindeer were removed from this herd unit. They found, I think it was a total of 18, 17 or 18 positives. So again, suggesting that it was very, very early in the disease cycle. Now their plan is to keep this, this herd unit, which is maybe 50 miles on a side, something like that, keep it fallow. In other words, not allow any reindeer in there for a minimum of five years. Again, hoping that any residual infectivity in the, in the soils you know, will be mitigated by that time. Don't know if it'll work, but it sounds like the right plan. If you want to, if you want, if your goal is to try and get rid of disease. So last winter, they looked at, I believe it was about over 30,000 additional samples in the areas around the outside of this zone. They didn't find any positives. So early detection, followed by aggressive intervention, um, you know, active monitoring, and open, honest communications with their stakeholders. Uh, they're following that recipe to a T. And if there's any place out there that I'm aware of that it looks like this program has every chance of success, this is it. So hats off to those folks. Yeah, and it's, uh, I'm sure, politically was not a, a fun endeavor, um, just like uh, I can't imagine trying to do the same thing here in the United States because politically um, we've seen sportsmen in this country use politics to their advantage to stop management uh, management of this disease, which is concerning. So I think what you said about open, honest communication is, a, is an important part of that. And uh, that's obviously something that, that we promote and stand for as well. So uh, what I want to do here is um, we, we could, we're going to, I think we'll do this again sometime and dig deeper into some of these topics. But uh, what I want to close with here is um, a little less about the gloom and doom. <laughs> and um, we're going to, we'll take it back to you personally here. Now, and I, I like to wrap up with this and that is so, um, you're not just a person that works on these diseases and, and has to deal with all the bad news all the time. Uh, you, you like to get into the outdoors a little bit yourself. So uh, setting CWD aside for a moment, you have the opportunity to pick any trip uh, right now. Uh, where would you go and who would you, and excuse me, who would you go with? You know, I've, I, I, I kind of had this, uh, 
this, this recurring thing of, of wanting to go fly fishing in Iceland. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> and I'd want somebody who is a way better fly fisherman than I would be, you know, cause, cause then maybe they'd, they'd help me not be, be, uh, you know, quite so dismal out there on the water. Well, I bet you haven't heard that one lately. Huh? I, I haven't. And then I'm, I'm actually sitting here searching for a response, but, uh, <laughs> I, I love doing stuff in the outdoors. Honestly, I love hunting. I love fishing. I just love getting out. I, I love walking through through prairies and seeing how many things I can identify out there on the landscape. Yeah, I, I grew up in the outdoors, and, and and I think there's just no place better for you know for folks to be. It's just outdoors, enjoying nature. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I remember that. The, the picture you, you had last year, I recall, of your, your frozen beard and I think your, your dog as well, <laughs> covered in ice. And I thought, you know, that's, uh, that's really cool. And you're not out there doing that unless you really just love, love being out there among it. You know, the dogs need exercise, whether it's, uh, you know, 80 above or 25 below. So you just kind of roll with it. That's what snowshoes were created for. <laughs> very true. Very true. Well, Brian, thank you very much for, we're, we're scratching the surface here on this issue, but I think we hit some key points that people will appreciate. And um, I know you and I will continue to work together on this. And I think I'd like to come back to this show as well to let people in on some of those conversations, hear some of the things that we talk about and deal with on a daily basis. Um, but again, I appreciate you being on and um, I'm sure it won't be long. We'll be talking again soon. Glad to do it, Nick. Appreciate everything you're doing for, for deer with the NDA. All right. Thank you. Thank you as well. And folks, if you're not already an NDA member, uh, we have the best deal going in town. It doesn't cost you anything. Please just go to the National Deer Alliance website, nationaldeeralliance.com. Click on the nice big green join button and you can join for free. You get our newsletter every Wednesday morning at eight o'clock Eastern with all the latest deer news going on across the country. And we even have a, our own little section dedicated uh, to CWD and the latest news. So check that out if you haven't already. Thanks for joining us. Hope to catch you again on a future episode. Take care.